0: Recorded under a cardboard box on the frozen outskirts of Shadow Moses, it's the RF Generation Nation Podcast, Volume 2. I'm your host, Jess. You can find me on the forums as Slacker.
1: And I'm Adam. You can know me as BicMan2K on the forums.
0: On this episode, we've got an actual introduction for these crazy people you're listening to.
1: We'll check out what's new on the front page of RF Generation.
0: BioWare warps to the dangerous side of DLC design with Layer of the Shadow Broker.
1: We also celebrate three major anniversaries in gaming.
0: As well as a brand old game review, finish out with a standard top five, and hope to fix some of the glaring issues from our test run.
1: One thing that we didn't get to in our last episode was a proper introduction to uh, Jess and I's gaming past. We hope this will give you a better idea of where we're coming from on the many topics that we're going to cover in future episodes. As for my gaming past, first systems I remember playing were the Intellivision and the NES. My parents had both of those Unfortunately, the Intellivision was ruined by a broken fish tank. The first system that I owned, uh, I was given a Super Nintendo for my birthday along with Mario Paint. And because of that, I think that by having the Super Nintendo as my main console for so long, that's probably been my favorite console to play on. My favorite game would probably have to be EarthBound. And my favorite genre of gaming... There's there's no possible way to answer that. I enjoy games of all genres. It doesn't matter as long as it's a you know, fun, enjoyable game. I'll play it. Uh, my collection, somewhere over 2,000 unique games. Uh, it's hard to you know give a closer idea than over 2,000. I'm currently moving things into storage, and I've been re-entering my entire collection along the way. I've also got a wide variety of Knickknacks, accessories, anything with a video game company on it, I'm bound to pick it up. What did you grow up with, Jess?
0: I was weaned on a Commodore 64. Probably about 10 years old. Uh, My dad was brave enough to let me tinker with it and never looked back. Uh, I loved the old Gazette magazines where you got to actually code in your own games and the machine language that uh, you just put in a bunch of gobbledygook and you could Hit return and hit a game. After that, my favorite systems are still the classic trinity of NES, Super Nintendo, and Sega Genesis. Don't make me choose between my kids. Super Nintendo. I enjoy first-person shooters, RPGs, (laughs) action-adventure, racing, puzzle, and just about anything old school. My collection right now hovers around 6,200 individual game titles, all of which threaten to break my shelving and collapse on top of me at any given moment. But enough about us.
1: Let's see what's new on Channel
0: 3. Noise Redux recommending Invader for the Game Boy Advance. There is no proof this title was ever released in America. And since I live in America, there's no proof this title was released ever. However, it comes highly recommended. Also, we have an Unloved by crabmaster 2000. Coming from the NES era, one of my childhood favorites, Journey to Silius. Adam, your thoughts?
1: I have not ever played Journey <laughs> to Silius. <laughs> That's
0: another one that uh, it has awesome music. I'm a music I'm a gaming music guy and that one yeah.
1: I mean, I have over the course of however many years, I've had, you know, all these different consoles and games and I rented games all the time and everything. And there are just so many games I still haven't even played. I was recently promoted to the site's technical director. Uh, We've also also got a story from Noise Redux where he shows off a very nice two-player setup for Game Boy Advance games using uh, a couple of GameCubes and some Game Boy players and and a couple of uh, spare monitors.
0: I actually have a strong appreciation for that. I was wanting to set up something like that for a long time. There's so many excellent two-player Game Boy Advance games, and, I don't know, it just kind of makes it a lot more fun when you can throw it up on the screen.
1: The one game that really... (laughs) I'd always wanted to do this with, was Pac-Man versus using four TVs, four GameCubes, Game Boy players, and being able to have each ghost have their own screen.
0: I think you just blew my mind.
1: As soon as, when that was first being shown off, and it was Game Boy Advance required, I thought, you gotta get four GameCubes and set that up.
0: Sheesh, and I thought I was being racy having a land set up for Motocross Maniacs Advance. Well, I finally had a chance to gripe about the lack of southpaw options for first-person shooters on consoles. It's something that I never understood why a few more extra minutes uh, couldn't save a lot of hassle for a lot of lefties who just can't play on a right-handed setting. For some of us, it's not a matter of actually getting more comfortable, it's a matter of literally getting sick trying to play it, like a motion sickness for me, anyway. And even though consoles tend to kind of cater to the lowest common denominator, so to speak, for uh, control settings and for options. It still just seems like a glaring oversight nowadays. And Noise Redux reflects on the second oddest accessory for the Game Boy Color, a sewing machine application, where you actually get to design on the Game Boy what you'd like for the machine itself to be able to kind of print out, like so. And, of course, it was Japan only. It was ridiculously expensive. It was never going to happen, but I still hold out hope. One day I'll find one of these
1: things. Now, I've seen recent sewing machines that do a similar thing that you actually plug them into your PC but to actually be able to do it with a Game Boy that's just one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. It's awesome and I totally want one but it's it's absurd.
0: And here's a take on some of what's new. BioWare released an epilogue to Mass Effect 2 in Layer of the Shadow Broker a $10 edition that finishes up loose ends and brings a little more connection to the character Liara and the franchise staple Shadow Broker character. There's a lot of hints towards Mass Effect 3, and fans will be missing canon story elements if they don't play through the DLC's two-hour mark. And that, quite frankly, is got me pretty up in arms about it. This is one of those we-all-feared-this-was-going-to-happen elements with DLC, where there's some pretty crucial story elements to a rather long-winded epic that you have to be nickeled and dimed for to be able to get the rest of the story.
1: DLC should be add-on content that is not necessarily essential to the story. It's nice to be able to have content that would tie into the story, but if it's something that, in effect, becomes a mandatory part of the story where you will miss out on the story in later editions if you don't play it, that's something that should be included on the disc.
0: I think most people can agree that if I want to you know, blow an extra dollar on a different character for a costume, maybe if the multiplayer element of a game really has legs, I might buy maps for a few extra bucks or something like that, but for a story-intensive game like Mass Effect, obviously, is they could theoretically release as many of these chapters as they wanted to up until Mass Effect 3 and then start that story off where you have no idea what's going on.
1: Yeah, it's... Uh... A possibility of setting a very dangerous precedent for downloadable contents and future massive games.
0: I actually really enjoyed the 2008's Prince of Persia, and it had an epilogue downloadable content in a kind of a similar vein, where it had a little snippet of extra story at the end, very obviously transitioning to a potential sequel. But I was really upset then that they... You know, you had this chunk that you literally had to pay ten bucks to see the end of the story. And it's something I really believe we're going to end up seeing more of unless you have a massive outcry about this kind of DLC. And unfortunately with the popularity of Mass Effect and Mass Effect 2, it's unlikely to happen anytime soon.
1: The other problem that gamers who are against something like this are going to have is that people are going to buy it anyway. And because of that that they're going to look at that and say well people are still buying this this is a good idea let's keep it going and then it's going to become more about the episodic content than what's on the disc that you're buying for 60 bucks
0: well the other big issue I have about this I can always go back and revisit Final Fantasy 7 I know that for what it is it's a complete story I know that I can go back I can finish Final Fantasy 7 all the way through and I'm done one day, they're going to turn the servers off for this DLC. And that means if I want to go back and revisit the Mass Effect trilogy, I'm going to end up missing some of these pieces of story. And no matter what I do, I won't be able to recapture them if, say, my hard drive goes out or that kind of thing. Right now, it's not something we think about a whole lot, but for any old-school collector, you know in another five, six, seven, ten years, You're going to want to go back and revisit some of these old classics you've been holding on to, and there might be a lot of pieces missing.
1: Well, they've already shut off Xbox One life support, so what happens to any kind of content that you might have wanted to purchase for those games? I mean, you're essentially out of luck, unless there's another way. I mean, it would be obviously a less legal way of getting these pieces of content, but it's already happening with the original Xbox being shut down. The original Xbox was... The first console to me that was setting the bar for downloadable content with the original version of Live. With it already being shut down, you know, there's no way to go back and purchase additional things for your games, whether they were free, whether they were paid for, that you could get a further experience out of those games with. And now with newer games having this almost a requirement to pay an extra 10 bucks to get the rest of the story, it could get bad very quickly.
0: So, Mr. Adam, where were you on 9 nine
1: I'm pretty sure I was in class that day. Where were you at?
0: It's a funny story between me and the Dreamcast. My wife was thrilled for finding the perfect gift for me because, unbeknownst to me, and thinking that we really couldn't afford it, she had picked up Final Fantasy VIII and had not said a word to me, which is hard for her to do because usually she has a difficult time picking out gifts. So, we had already looked over coverage of the Dreamcast on magazines and such. We had intended on getting it, but hadn't really talked ourselves into a, you know, an immediate purchase due to finances. Well, my roommate, whom I was out at Walmart just getting necessities for the home, managed to while he was in the electronics department drooling over this new edition under the glass counter, managed to talk me into helping out with the purchase of said system. My wife was not pleased to come (laughs) home with this wonderful gift she had spent weeks preparing, uh, you know, financially and otherwise, to surprise me with, to see me and my roommate sitting there in front of the TV, complete with the Dreamcast system hooked up, and a stack of three games, memory card, extra controller, the works. (laughs) I... I'm ashamed to admit that that was probably one of the more difficult conversations we had directly afterwards. I, I just kind of broke her heart over it, and I, you know, to this day I still kind of feel like, eh. But thankfully, after I showed her Soul Calibur, which she had been drilling over magazine shots of, all seemed to be forgiven eventually.
1: I was not quite as fortunate to pick one up on uh, launch day. I actually never got one until... Years after, but my best friend happened to have one. And when I went to check it out, I couldn't believe the difference in the graphical capabilities versus the PlayStation and the Nintendo 64. It was simply night and day. Playing Sonic Adventure, ready to rumble boxing. And the new style of controller that they used, which is really... I still find it fairly comfortable. Uh, the buttons are placed, you know, they're easy enough to reach for my hands. The controller doesn't feel cramped uh, like some controllers do. I've got pretty large hands, and so you know, the controller comfort was very nice. The use of the small screens on the VMUs were was an interesting idea that I again didn't get to fully experience, but. I was very excited about, you know, the getting this when I first saw it.
0: It had a lot of potential that I think sadly went mostly unrealized. But it was a, a fascinating concept for the control, the VMU, where you actually could have some visual representation. And for sports games and such, it was just a brilliant innovation, in my opinion. I think more than any other controller, uh, the Dreamcast wins the award for first impression. Oh my gosh, that looks terrible and uncomfortable. And then as soon as they actually Put the controller in their hands and get a feel for it oh okay i like this it has a bizarre comfort to it and you know in my opinion that uh yeah it, it definitely was my my favorite controller at the time i, l- I loved it even more than the, the dual shock initially we started off with soul Calibur, which i knew was going to be what i was able to sell my wife on it because she loves fighting games and <laughs> she's been looking at screenshots you know like i said for for weeks and months beforehand Picked up Hydro Thunder because we all enjoyed that in the arcade, and Sonic Adventure because, well, it's a Sega system. you got to get a Sonic for it, especially and a debut one.
1: And it's 3D Sonic. To me, it still has some, you know, the graphics for Sonic Adventure, I think, still hold up pretty well for, for what it is. I mean, it's a launch title in 99. Where Sega hadn't really jumped as much into a 3D gaming system, they had the Saturn, but it wasn't really geared for 3D gaming. To, for them to produce a game with... That kind of shine behind it uh, really you know, gave some promises to what could come in the future.
0: It's interesting you mention about the, the 3D element because I really enjoyed Sonic Adventure for the first two levels, and that was all I could play. I got motion sick from it, and I couldn't even watch my roommate play it, which was sad. Um, <laughs> it's the only launch title we had that we didn't spend dozens and dozens of hours in. <laughs>
1: You couldn't uh, Southpaw crab claw that Dreamcast controller?
0: Well, the nice part is the Southpaw <laughs> system itself, the software typically geared towards Southpaws because it had the analog stick. A lot of games had a default where you actually used the analog as the look because that was where you wanted your sensitivity. And your mm-hmm. character movement usually was mapped to the, the buttons unless it was like Trigger, and they did bizarre stuff with like the D-pad as well as the <laughs> analog, which you had to have like five hands to be able to operate correctly or just put it up in an arcade machine. But... Mm. The game itself would go so fast and then just start doing loop-de-loops and, and, you know, perspective would just go all crazy. And, uh, I, yeah, I was watching it and realizing, oh my goodness, I'm going to actually be sick if I keep on watching this. So, um, (laughs) it was a very innovative game for its time. All the stuff it brought to the Sonic license, which we have since been trying to get rid of, but... uh, (laughs) Yeah, I you know, for a launch title, it was, in my opinion, quite exceptional. It's just recently been released on the Xbox Live Arcade and hitting some really negative reviews because people are like, wow, we had next-gen glasses on when we were staring at this. I mean, at times the game can be, you know, broken to the point of unplayable, but, you know, for its time, it sold systems.
1: And up to that point, Sega hardware was the only place to get a Sonic game. So, you know, that's going to, by itself, sell systems and the fact that it was the first, you know, real 3D Sonic game, you know, you've never experienced Sonic in that sort of a an environment. And to compare that to Super Mario 64 with its relatively simplistic 3D graphics, the comparisons could have been made. You know, it's a three-year difference in hardware. But the gameplay, yeah, we may have been overhyping it a little bit, but it's definitely still got a little bit of nostalgia to it.
0: Well, I'm always going to remember the Dreamcast for two major additions that it brought to video gaming. It was the first 3D system that I actually saw and realized, okay, now you've sold me on polygons. I mean, for all the years that PlayStation was out and all the impressive games I went through, the 3D still looked so... Blocky. Yeah, it was... You know, you you had some wonderful games, and by the time you got to Metal Gear Solid, you know, I could definitely appreciate the graphics, but... When Dreamcast came out, it was like I finally realized what they were trying to get at with 3D for all this time, with with the polygonal engines. And the other mark that Dreamcast left, which we're still living up to this day, was the console edition of Internet. I mean, Japan had a limited access, even th- all the way back to the Nintendo, for you know, online services for games and downloading. But for us Westerners, this was the first system that came out of the gate that from the beginning said, hey, look, you know, We've got this accessibility built right in. It took a little while for SegaNet to get up, but even the simplest games like Choo Choo Rocket was just a revelation to console gamers to be able to play online, and they really tried to capitalize it. In many ways, it was kind of too soon for the technology, I think, because they they couldn't make any money off of it, and a lot of people, even on broadband, you know, there were so many network issues trying to connect, even with that slow of speed, that uh, you know, it was almost too too much too early, but If it weren't for a Dreamcast modem, I don't think we'd have Xbox Live or PSN or millions of 12-year-olds cussing at us every time we play Halo.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the the modem definitely was a huge addition to me. Um, The fact that they even gave the option to allow online access is pretty amazing. I mean, 1999, you're still looking at, you know, broadband hasn't really taken off yet, and with the addition of the web browser software the availability of the keyboard you essentially could have a $200 web browsing machine that you could hook up to your TV and not tie you down to your desk in your office or in a den or something like that to bring the internet out to the living room you know it may not have taken off like they were hoping it would and it may not have had the you know widespread use
0: well even in the late 90s the 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 PC was for a console gamer this mysterious machine that you could occasionally occasionally see an absolutely graphically gorgeous game that you had to use magic with video expensive video cards to be able to run properly and suddenly you have this machine you can get online with has absolutely gorgeous graphics for its time and with the announced keyboard peripheral the camera peripheral the zip drive peripheral you know, all these things that never actually materialized to the to the public they had all of these uh, innovative options. to bring this yeah options granted a lot of that if, if it actually ever was released was likely peter out but then again those gimmicks some of them are still holding on i mean now we have motion control now we have move and connect and you know we're utilizing these vast storage medias uh the the optical interaction these things that realistically dreamcast was really trying to bring to the table you know over a decade ago so there's a lot of different directions it could have gone if Sega hadn't wasted so much money on the Neptune, the 32X, the Saturn.
1: Yeah, I think that it definitely was ahead of its time, but by allowing not just the availability, but to offer games and push games that would properly utilize that internet access, it was helping to also try and push the widespread use with titles like, well, the, the biggest one that comes to mind is Fantasy Star Online. Classic. I mean, it had, you know, various releases on different consoles, but it all started on the Dreamcast. And that modem if the modem was not in that Dreamcast, I don't see Fantasy Star Online happening really at all. I, I think the only reason that it's come out in later iterations is because when Sega went multi-platform, they, they saw that there was still a following for that title, and they have better capabilities now with a higher wi- uh, broadband penetration with more advanced consoles like the PlayStation 2 and the Xbox. I just don't see that title ever surfacing after the Dreamcast lifespan as an original title. I think the Dreamcast did definitely help spur online gaming with Phantasy Star.
0: There's no doubt. It showed that, at least in solid concept And mostly in execution, you could have these larger scale games that you were used to only seeing on PC. Granted, they were customized for console, and many people would argue more limited. But at the same time, Sega was known for bringing innovation to the table. I mean, nothing plays quite like a Fantasy Star Online, except for the, you know, even the later games and that are online series don't quite play like the original. And you know, a lot of people lament that they want the old magic back. Uh, but then you go into titles like Seaman, you know, it's just bizarre out there stuff that, you know, Sega wasn't afraid to take chances on. You know, it might not sell great, but it's really showing that they're thinking outside of the box to try to bring these new experiences in. And, you know, a lot, Nintendo gets a lot of credit for coming out with those innovations, and even Sony, especially for software. But a lot of people don't as easily remember that back in its heyday, Sega really pushed some bizarre stuff out there.
1: Sega's always been, to me, too innovative for their own good. Look at the Master System and its graphical capabilities versus what the Nintendo brought to the table. There are arguably much better graphics on the Master System than on the NES, but the NES had the games. Sega brought out the Genesis two years before the SNES came out, the They were attempting they brought out the Sega C D, they brought out the thirty two X trying to some would say extend the lifespan of the Genesis with these add ons, which you know probably agree, don't ever take off. But they were always pushing that envelope to try and introduce something to make the game experience a little bit better.
0: And it's something we have to keep in mind in retrospect that at the time, even though tech guys and computer guys were pursuing the C D ROM avenue this was all untested. This was all just theory, you know. All this could have ended up going the way of Betamax. And for companies like Sega and uh, at the time also NEC, they had to, you know, kind of upfront all of this cash on a chance that this is where gaming was going to go because that's just kind of the sad part of how fast our industry moves. You know, you got to kind of catch the lightning in the bottle over and over to keep people interested because hey, the other guys doing something and now suddenly I'm in the dust. And so they had to second guess where people and the industry was going to go. Not just where the industry was going to move, but what people would actually buy in the meantime. And like you said, they kind of jumped the gun in a lot of cases. The CD-ROM attachment was outrageously expensive, and of course, nowadays produced laughable results. But at the time, that was their best guess for where gaming was going to be moving to. And And,
1: And in the end, they were right, but they were just too early. The long loading times, limited capabilities on the Genesis, really kind of limited what the uh, Sega CD's potential was, but optical media, you know, that's the way the industry is at now.
0: Yeah, if it weren't for the pioneering efforts from Sega and NEC and, of course, really, everybody tugging at different directions of the industry, you know, that's, that's how it shaped, is different people trying to make money off of these things and seeing what's going to catch on. And
1: speaking of early disc-based consoles, 9.9 was also the 15th anniversary of Sony's PlayStation. Were you one of the early adopters on the PlayStation as well?
0: I wanted to be. I went 3DO.
1: 3DO. It's
0: true. It wasn't really by choice so much as it was the last system I could convince my parents to buy. And, (laughs) of course, two weeks later, I start seeing screenshots and magazine articles about the PlayStation and missed the boat on that one.
1: I was still playing Super Nintendo games at that point. Uh, Let's see, 1995. Yeah, that would have put me... Still in middle school, so um, didn't really have a job to go out and buy game systems or anything like that, so I'm still working on the Super NES, but that same friend of mine, he had a PlayStation, and it was an interesting experience. Yeah, this new controller looks like a Super Nintendo controller, but it's got four triggers on top instead of just the two and it's got the little handles, disc-based media, and the prospect of 3D games that it gave a good taste for them. And at the time, they weren't bad 3D graphics. Kind of that awkward transitioning period between the 16-bit beautiful 2D scapes to the more graphically pleasing 3D games that we enjoy now.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that transition state because I'm really curious in another few years how the original PlayStation is going to be viewed because one of the things gamers like me have to recognize is that for an pretty much an entire generation, the PlayStation to PlayStation 2 was their Nintendo to Super Nintendo. That was their introduction to gaming. That's what they initially started on and what they're always going to have some kind of aspect of nostalgia for. And when gamers a little bit older like me go back to Nintendo and Super Nintendo, the Super Nintendo did not make the Nintendo obsolete. I mean, granted, you know, all of these technical capabilities were greater, but most of the game engines were pretty much similar. You still had mostly the same genres. Well, when you got to PlayStation era you were really redefining a lot of what we expected. You know, first-person shooters were taking off, you had more realistic sports simulations, you were really pushing a different envelope, and like you said, that transition shows because a lot of people have incredibly fond memories of, say, Tomb Raider. Now you go back to try to play the original Tomb Raider and you recognize why they did a remake of it just recently. <laughs> it's a hard game to go back to. Now the level design is still interesting and you know there's still a lot to sell it on, but Feels and plays like a like a clunky game, you know. At the time, it was excellent. Now we go back after some of these refinements that really helped, uh, you know, kind of refine these genres. And we're like, oh, so that's where we came from. And I'm wondering just how easy it's going to be for you know the generation that kind of came after me to grow up on those systems. How easy they're going to be able to go back, you know, the kind of like the like what we were saying that where the Dreamcast really started refining these 3D engines. In the same sense, the the PlayStation Two. Um, is probably a better nostalgia point because, again, you know, we're looking at 360 graphics and then whatever's going to come out after that. It's, you know, th- they still look fairly primitive, but at least it's easier for the art design to show through the texture work and such. You know, there's there's something to be said for consistent art design and, and things to get away from technical limitations. But then again, you know, you get to a point to where you can only do so much. Uh, I have incredibly fond memories of, say, Panzer Dragoon Saga, but most of those memories, in terms of graphics, are all what I was writing in my head based off what I was seeing. It was almost more of an abstraction. You know, Sometimes you just couldn't even really tell what you were looking at just because of the technology at the time. So I kind of went back and you know almost had repainted that just because the art design was so consistent and so vivid, as well as the atmosphere, music, all those other elements. And It makes me wonder how easy it's going to be for people to do that with the PlayStation era.
1: Yeah, the big thing that really plagued early 3D games, especially with the original PlayStation controller, was the lack of very easy camera control.
0: Well, most of those games had a more forced perspective. It was mm-hmm. kind of like walking through the screen. So it wasn't as common to have those problems because you know they kind of knew their limitations, and so they catered the game design towards that.
1: I certainly remember trying to play Tomb Raider 2 with a digital pad, and I could not see what I was shooting at. I eventually ran out of bullets got eaten by a wolf, couldn't figure out what was going on, but... I don't
0: remember that in the actual <laughs> canon story. That's Laura being eaten by a wolf. That would have been a short game.
1: Yeah, that that certainly was one of my first experiences with it, it was a very short game.
0: You didn't miss much. She went into Area 51 <laughs> later. It just went downhill from there. <laughs> that is one thing I can definitely give Sony credit for with their DualShock controller. A lot of people still consider it to be the, the de facto standard for all of gaming.
1: Well, Sony where, considers it to be the de facto. That's, I mean, it's the same shell design that they've continued for three generations now.
0: And for good reason. A lot of people, it's just not playing a game unless they have a Sony controller in their hands. The positioning of the analog sticks was something that I was never comfortable with, but seems to be pretty, you know, not unanimous, but very, very obviously popular. But the fact that they added two controllers there... Uh, two analogs, and that really broke through the PC first-person shooter barrier and made consoles have something that your PC fans will always say that you know nothing will ever replace a mouse and keyboard. But the analog sticks finally gave something that console gamers could really get past you know the awkward digital features of a 3D space and actually use something mm-hmm. they could control their characters with. And yeah, definitely kudos to them for coming up with a design that you could use that workaround for consoles.
1: Yeah, the dual analogs, along with... I mean, it gives you more precise controller, definitely. And to offer it at, you know, really it was a very high-quality control mechanism for fairly, not necessarily all of them, but for some fairly simplistic original-gen 3D games. To be able to offer that sort of precision with either your control uh, for different speeds of movement, for analog camera control, for anything like that, was a very big advance as far as allowing console gamers to access the sort of precision that PC gamers have always had with the keyboard mouse.
0: Another thing that Sony really brought back to the table with PlayStation is the emphasis on good marketing, because I really think, aside from the technical abilities and, of course, the competitive price with the only real alternative at the time, which was the Saturn... You really had a marketing muscle that hadn't been seen since the glory halcyon days of Genesis versus Super Nintendo with Nintendo and and every other you know brilliant little blurb that stuck in your head. You know, Sony really pushed this marketing for the PlayStation, made it the cool, hip new thing. Suddenly, it wasn't just about Mario and Sonic; it was about game day. You know, it was about twisted metal. It was about. A slightly different demographic that they were specifically targeting, and it caught on like wildfire. You know, it was suddenly cool again to be the kid with a video game system. Mm-hmm. If it was, a PlayStation, and that really has never let go. You know, it's still in people's minds. It, it replaced the the word Nintendo to mean game machine. You know, yes. now people come in and they they say, "Hey, you got that PlayStation game?" and they might be talking about gears of war you know it's now become the replacement synonym and for sony to have entrenched itself it was just a matter of of perfect timing and brilliant marketing that was able to sell that system and i can't say i'm a not as much of a sony fan as as some of the other bigger video game companies but i definitely give them credit where it's due and in many ways they really helped push the mainstream envelope for gaming
1: well sony really got their feet wet kind of by the uh you know, by making the PlayStation add-on for the Super Nintendo. And I think that taste really gave them uh, a good insight as to what they could possibly pull off. With the type of, you know, money that Sony as an entire corporation has behind it to be able to push that type of machine that it really is a good, solid piece of hardware with a good marketing campaign, good set of games, and really a good standing name in consumer electronics to begin with. They're not just... A nobody coming out that's going to say, we're going to make the next big game console. This is Sony, TVs, stereos, everything else. They've already made good quality products. Now we're going to make a game system. And as for the marketing, who doesn't remember, you are not ready. Yeah,
0: however you feel about Sony as a company, it can't be denied that their influence on modern gaming is uh, easily as important, if not equal to Nintendo's.
1: They've done a lot of good for the industry in... Fifteen years.
0: You gotta admit, any company brave enough to be able to even sell a six hundred dollar video game system during a recession—that's impressive.
1: Well, the guts to even say that it's too cheap at six hundred dollars even is fairly ballsy, and you know there were a lot of things that were should have been left unsaid by it Jack Tretton, who did the uh, I'll pay twelve $1, he... hundred dollars if you find a PlayStation Three in the store. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and the people sending in pictures of dozens of them stacked up, things yes. that they'd be able to get college paid for.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah with some of the things that uh, Jack Tretton said about $1,200, if you could find a PlayStation in a store, I mean, to me, it it was pretty funny because, you know, with Nintendo, the NES, the Super NES, it seemed like with the N64, it seemed like they were, well, everybody, it seemed like considered them arrogant. We're going to go with cartridge-based, not CD-based. We're going to you know, go with this obscure control system, and we're not going to go with a standard controller that you can hold in your re- your hands with, rather than the three-prong that they had. It seemed like Sony was starting to do the same thing. They have since reeled that in. Their marketing campaign now for the PlayStation 3 is great. Funny ads, it's not the bizarre, creepy baby doll babies. In the white room. <laughs> God, that was the worst ad I think I've ever seen for any kind of gaming. I mean, that's just awful. But now with you know, they got funny ads, they got Kevin Butler, who is just a riot. If you don't if you're on Twitter and you're not following Kevin Butler, do it for a treat. He is hilarious. They've completely turned around from the start of the PS three launch to where they are now, as far as their marketing goes.
0: It's great to have those fun, playful personalities in gaming. Speaking of fun personalities in gaming, this year marks the 25th anniversary of Super Mario Brothers.
1: On September 13th, 1985, Super Mario Brothers was launched in the United States. Sharing a cart with everyone's most hated dog and duck hunt, Super Mario Brothers was packed into every Nintendo action set and is more than likely the first game that most of us played on the Nintendo Entertainment System. Who doesn't remember their first time grabbing a mushroom, picking up a fire flower, running through... Koopas and Goombas after grabbing their first star and getting the Bowser at the end of each castle Despite
0: the run and jump genre being introduced previously with such games as pitfall, Super Mario Brothers brought a level of polish rarely seen in video games at that time the impressive graphics, the detailed world, and the countless hidden secrets really brought players back over and over.
1: Not to mention the catchy soundtrack that we're still humming to this day, that that anyone who, even if you haven't played a Mario game, knows the music to the Super Mario Brothers. Really, I think what
0: the major turning point with Mario and the introduction of Super Mario Brothers was that it was a game that seemed so much larger than just about anything on consoles at the time, simply because it was a fairly lengthy game, but most importantly, it just had countless secrets it was easy to pick up and understand at the time thinking that uh, you know you're going mostly from an atari joystick or or it's ilk to something that has four buttons and a weird cross thing you needed something like super mario brothers to really break you into this new kind of control model setup and basically extending the complexity of what the console games would later be known for beyond just pressing one button and moving back and forth to avoid the alien
1: yeah the other thing that really brought in players, I think, with Super Mario Brothers is that every level was different. It wasn't more the same environment with things slightly out of place. You had above-ground worlds, underground worlds, underwater worlds, castles, lava, variants of enemies over... I mean, there wasn't much difference, but for the time in 1985, to have that many different enemies in a video game seemed to be quite the jump from the days of Atari when you had maybe one or two different enemies to have to work through.
0: This is also one of those games that I think is really important for collectors because it's very easy for your typical gamer nowadays to say, well, sheesh, if you're going to go backwards, go to like you know, Mario 3 or Mario World because that's where you really started seeing something worth playing. But when you're a collector and you see the, especially the platform games that were available leading up, there's just not a lot that was competing with it. I mean, it, it just brought to it just a completeness that we kind of take for granted now in game design and just with the, the flow of how games supposed to feel. I mean, you can even go back to the regular Mario Brothers, which I think it's interesting. We celebrate the 25th anniversary of Super Mario Brothers, largely ignoring Mario Brothers came out a couple of years earlier, featured some of the similar gameplay mechanics in a way, a whole lot more limited, but it just did not control as smoothly. The, The flow just wasn't there that it is to Super Mario Brothers. And in celebrating the 25th anniversary of Super Mario Brothers, we're kind of just appreciating how refined that title started. And then it's kind of interesting, even when you have what's considered to be perhaps a better version, so to speak, of that game, like in the Mario All-Stars for Super Nintendo, it was largely critiqued because they didn't get the physics right just exactly like they had for the Nintendo. Uh, I watched a video just a few days ago of somebody who had rigged up a Nintendo and a Super Nintendo controller together leading into a single input interface for Super Nintendo. And this guy actually played the original Super Mario Bros. and the Mario All-Star version of Mario Bros. Uh, simultaneously, and it didn't match up. You know, you could, it, it wasn't an exact copy. And it just shows... How obsessed people were with that, you know, that play control with that physics model to actually try those kind of experiments and say, you know what? See, I told you this didn't quite match up as I remember it.
1: People, you know, as you mentioned, they do go back to the Super Mario Brothers three or Super Mario World for the greater titles of the series, but those wouldn't have been there without Super Mario Brothers. And really, Mario Brothers, it wasn't a platformer; it's a competitive arcade game. You know, single screen with Super Mario Brothers, it allowed a large expansion of the relatively small Mario universe that was started with Mario Brothers, and allowed it to be presented on a much grander scale than just a single screen at a time.
0: And I just have to throw this out there because while I can definitely appreciate that Super Mario All-Stars kind of mixed a little bit with uh, the general feel of the, the controls for Super Mario Brothers, I have to give kudos to the Game Boy Color release of Super Mario DX, which in my opinion is the best version out there. The controls were just superb, and it was the first time I actually completed Super Mario Bros. going from World 1-1 straight through the game and not warping. (laughs) Sadly, I have to admit, that was my first shot. But still, it it was, uh, in my opinion, just the perfect version of that game. It had a few little extras. They didn't tweak the formula uh, so much that anything I felt was missed. And yeah, if, if you're a collector, it's worth hunting down. And your brand old game review this episode is for one of my all-time favorites, Hudson Soft and Red Entertainment's Gate of Thunder. Released in 1992 for the ill-fated Turbo Duo, this gem has a new lease on life through the Wii's virtual console. If you've ever enjoyed piloting a tiny one-man armada-destroying spacecraft with a mysterious ability to project a Kamehameha from the cockpit, you really should give this one a try. While IREM's R-Type series took shmups into the route-memorizing method, and Cave has focused on manic bullet patterns for the last decade of Thunder fits between these eras. It refines the sense of stage-to-stage momentum from the previous Thunder Force titles. It can be easy to try this game for just a few minutes and mistake it for another generic shooter clone, but it also doesn't take long to start recognizing good design. The game simply feels fast and fluid while playing fair with collision and hit detection. The weapon selection is small, but each is useful, and unlike its cousin Gradius, you rarely feel completely underpowered even when you lose a ship. You don't see the same enemies repeating between stages, the bosses are interesting and massive, and each level progresses smooth until a frantic final two stages, and the normal difficulty feels like a warm-up to the real challenge on the harder settings. And no review of Gate of Thunder would be complete without mentioning the incredible soundtrack. While the sound effects are average, even if somewhat shrill, and a little loud, the Redbook Audio music is often listed in the top 10 game soundtracks without the words Final, Chrono, or Mana involved. Comprised of 80s guitar rock with surprisingly complex synth overlays, it's worth a tour to the sound test on the main menu. With the Wii's Virtual Console version, you no longer have the that I don't have an old and expensive console excuse. If you've ever had fun with Gradius, Starius, or even a previous Thunder Force title, this game deserves your attention. And in honor of Gate of Thunder, and every other game like it, we have... The Top 5 Reasons Your Little Ship Always Survives Against the Evil Alien Armada. Number 5. Some wise guy went around replacing all alien ammunition with slower-moving paintballs. Number 4. Aliens can't convince outsourced manufacturers to stop coloring weak points orange. Number 3. Grax say, it's not easy. You try hitting little ship. Number two. Aliens are actually just trying to get rid of a few million clunkers for an insurance scam. And the number one reason your little ship always survives against the evil alien armada, bad guys can't compete with your super secret weapon, codenamed Game Genie. Well, that wraps up another episode. The RF Generation Nation podcast was brought to you by the letters EA and the number 256. As always, if you have any questions, comments, comments, Queries, posers, or topics, please send them to our forums on the site. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Our site address is www.rfgeneration.com. You can also check out our blogs, track your video game collection, and chat with us live via a web application or through your favorite IRC client at RFGeneration on Quakenet. And as always, don't forget to keep it on Channel 3.
0: Micro.